last season on The Pursuit. We hear life, liberty, and property, the, the Lockean version, or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which was something that the founding fathers, of course, used in the Declaration of Independence. And I think it's really interesting and important that property was replaced um, with pursuit of happiness, because I think that tells us a lot about the founding fathers' concept of property rights. I haven't done anything wrong. You can't do this. So as we're talking, the next thing I heard was uh, one of the guys say, we got him. He yells out, we got him. And I'm thinking, what has he got? I think people really need to remember, you know, what happened to us. And I think another thing, too, that people need to realize that they can say no and can attempt to keep what's theirs and attempt to do the right thing. This is The Pursuit, a podcast about government action and individual liberty. I'm Tess Terrible. Last season on The Pursuit, we followed many stories about individuals who were directly impacted by civil forfeiture, but these individuals were never charged with a crime. On this episode, we are talking to someone who was convicted of a crime. This is Tyson Timms. I grew up an army brat. My dad was in the army for 20 years. We moved around a lot until I was about 14, and then that's when we settled in Ohio. I was just a you know regular Midwestern teenager. You know, I had good parents, so my background wasn't like some of the stories of, of other addicts. You know that I've heard that had terrible childhoods. Mine was good. I got a good job uh, eventually. I worked in a factory place around where I'm from, one of the places that people want to work because it's it's a good job. So, you know, I thought I was on my way to being a responsible adult and I have bad feet. So I went to the podiatrist to see what they could do. And I needed insoles for my work boots and they had to order them. So she wrote me a prescription for hydrocodone. And that's when my problem started you know, I, I started taking them how I was supposed to, but it wasn't very long before I was throwing an extra one in here and there. You know, then I started running out of my prescriptions before they were supposed to be out. Eventually, the doctor said, you know, she couldn't do it anymore. She wasn't going to write me any more prescriptions. So I started buying pills on the street from people. I did that for a long time, quite a few years, actually. And surprisingly I functioned pretty well it didn't cause much of a problem for a long time you know I uh, seemed normal to me my dad he he tried you know uh, but I, I know he, he just he didn't know what to do there's nothing you can't do because I wasn't ready it was it was pretty hard on him uh, the last year of his life this is how crazy that, that, that I was as an addict. My dad had a prescription for the uh, fentanyl pain patches. And, you know, they're so strong, you only get like seven in a prescription. So it's not like you're going to lose one. And I stole one from him, and, and he found out about it, obviously. And, you know, he asked me about it, and I actually got mad at him. You know, and now that I think back, it... it I, it, it's hard to even wrap my head around 
that idea that I got mad at him because I stole from him and you know he just asked me about it I ended up leaving uh, my left that day and this part is kind of hard for me to talk about he called me every day for like six months I didn't talk to him. And he didn't know if I was dead or... And it's always the same. Hey, bud, it's dad. You know, just check it to make sure you're all right. Call me back. I finally did talk to my dad. I called him, uh, you know, after like six months. And we talked a few times, you know, between then and when he died. But it was... It was hard on him, you know, he, he tried, but I wasn't ready, so. After Tyson's dad died, Tyson received a large sum of money from his father's life insurance policy. He decided to buy a brand new car, a Land Rover. He spent much of the remaining money on purchasing illegal drugs and participating in drug sales as well. After selling about $225 worth of drugs to undercover cops, he was arrested in November of 2013. Officer that pulled me over said something about they were looking for a hit and run. It looked like uh, it was a white SUV, and you know I didn't think anything of it. And as he looked around my truck, and he walked around, and then so he asked me to get out, and he asked if he could get the call the canine unit, you know, to come and check things out. And I said, sure, you know. So the dog went around a few times, uh, and I thought we were about done. You know, I thought, okay, nothing, you know, they haven't found anything, so they're going to let me go. And and pretty soon the dog hit on my side of, of my truck, and they cuffed me and took me to jail. Tyson was tried, convicted, and sentenced to one year of house arrest, five years probation, and $1,200 in fines, which he paid on time. Tyson served his sentence, and he's been clean for five years. He attended rehab, and he speaks openly about his struggle with drug addiction. As part of his sentence, the state of Indiana confiscated his Land Rover because Tyson had used the vehicle to transport the drugs. The state argued that his car was an accessory to his drug selling and refused to release it to him. After going through rehab, he decided to file suit against the state, arguing that he had already successfully served his sentence and for the Indiana police to seize his vehicle, not to mention his only mode for transportation, was excessive and in violation of the Eighth Amendment Excessive Fines Clause. This is Sam Gedge from the Institute for Justice. He is sitting co-counsel on this case. So the case started with Tyson Timms when police in Grant County, Indiana, seized his car and have spent the past five years trying to take it through a process called civil forfeiture. The trial court in Tyson's case said that taking his car would violate the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment, that it would be disproportionate to his offenses to take his most valuable piece of property. The Indiana Court of Appeals agreed. Uh, but then when the case reached the Indiana Supreme Court, that court disagreed. And they said even if 
taking Tyson's car would be excessive. That doesn't matter because the excessive fines clause doesn't apply at all to the state of Indiana. And that's the issue that we brought up now before the Supreme Court. The Indiana Court of Appeals agreed that taking Tyson's car was excessive, but when the case went to the Indiana Supreme Court, they said it didn't matter because the United States Supreme Court hasn't ruled that the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment applies to the states. This means that if you or I were arrested, charged, and convicted under state law, we would not have protection against excessive fines. So if I was issued a parking ticket where I live in Virginia, I could be charged $200, but I could also be charged $20,000. So the Supreme Court decided to hear this case and determine if we have protection against excessive fines. It's important to emphasize that if the Supreme Court rules in Tyson's favor, it would not specifically abolish civil forfeiture. The Supreme Court is only determining whether or not the excessive fines clause applies to the states. I want to back up a little bit and just ask you plainly, what is the excessive fines clause? So the excessive fines clause is one of three clauses in the Eighth Amendment uh, to the U.S. Constitution. The most famous of the three clauses is the cruel and unusual punishments clause. Uh, There's also the excessive bail clause. And then there's the provision saying that excessive fines cannot be imposed either. All three clauses have a very rich heritage. They date back to the English Bill of Rights in the 1680s and beyond that to the Magna Carta. And The excessive fines clause in particular embodies a really fundamental notion, which is that the government cannot take all of your property or or take an excessive amount of of your property if they want to punish you. So the excessive fines clause is a vital check on the government's power to use economic sanctions to punish people. And increasingly in recent decades, this has become uh, an increasingly important check as federal government, as the state governments, as local governments more and more turn to fines and forfeitures, not necessarily to do justice, but rather to, to bolster their own revenues. Increasingly, you're seeing all levels of government levying economic sanctions to try to bring in more money, oftentimes for the very agencies that are enforcing the law. What this case will do is make clear that state governments, local governments, just like the federal government, cannot impose constitutionally excessive civil forfeitures. Yeah, I can't help but wonder, like, what does the state of Indiana want with Tyson's car? <laughs> well, they, they want a $40,000 Land Rover. Okay. And there is a nationwide phenomenon where we see civil forfeiture and other kinds of economic sanctions being used very aggressively precisely because police and prosecutors have a built-in incentive to try to get as much property as they can. In many states and at the federal level, it allows government to take people's property without charging them with a crime, without convicting them of a crime. And there's the additional built-in incentive for police and prosecutors to use civil forfeiture aggressively, not to do justice, but instead to bring in more money for their own agencies. Tyson's paid his debt to society. He has taken responsibility for what he has done, paying fees and seeking drug treatment. He has a job and has remained clean for over five years. But without a car, it was harder for Tyson to seek help. If it was just about my Land Rover, I would have stopped. I gave that up a long time ago. I I didn't figure I'd ever get it back. So, yeah, I mean, I need a vehicle. It would be great to get it back, you know, and I hope that I do. But while I was going through all this the, the court stuff, I started doing a lot of research and, and reading stories about other people like me 
and people that didn't even get weren't even arrested for anything people didn't even do anything wrong just had their stuff taken that's 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 what it's been about for me for a long time now is it's just wrong that's just one part of the the criminal justice system that i i think needs fixed it's it's not fair and i've been lucky not all of us have been as lucky as i have with the help that i've gotten from people and it's an unnecessary stressor for people that already have problems. I understand that just because we have issues doesn't mean we should be babied, but we're still people. I've had to walk to counseling and therapy appointments, and I've had to get rides to meetings. That's that's fine. I've done those things, but I've also not went because I didn't have a ride. It's just an unnecessary stressor that we don't need. It's it's not fair. I've already been punished once. I did my house arrest, and I'm serving my probation. I've helped the community in in different ways. I've been on uh, the our county drug task force, which, by the way, the same officers that arrested me serve on too. So that that's pretty cool. That if, if we can all work together maybe something can can be helped but yeah i mean i've i've done i i'm paying my my price and i'm i'm doing what what they asked me to do so this this really didn't make any sense to me at all why they they fought this so hard it's my truck so i get why i've done it but why are they fighting so hard The federal government essentially wanted to encourage drug enforcement. And the way they framed it at the time was taking the profits out of drug crimes and in trying to target what they thought was like major traffickers and drug kingpins. Let's remove the profit out of those crimes. This is Taisha Nato of the Drug Policy Alliance. The Drug Policy Alliance submitted an amicus brief in favor of Tyson. Their brief was one of 18 in support of Tyson. In 1984, Congress passed some legislation that allowed law enforcement agencies to retain the property that was seized as part of these investigations. And that was a huge turning point. The minute agencies got to retain the property that they seized, you see a huge, huge increase in drug-related forfeitures. So initially, when Congress implemented forfeiture legislation, the fund that received forfeiture dollars back in 1986 was around $93 million. As of 2017, that fund toppled $8 billion. (laughs) So it just shows how the huge, explosive reach of, of forfeiture, despite the billions of dollars that I invested in fighting the war on drugs, we still see that availability of drugs has not changed. And if the goal of asset forfeiture was to encourage law enforcement activity when it comes to drug-related crimes, we have seen the increase in activity. We just haven't seen a decrease in the supply. And although this case wouldn't abolish civil forfeiture, you said it would have pretty major implications 
for civil forfeiture in the future. That's right. It will ensure that the excessive fines clause is a backstop against the most excessive forfeitures and fines for that matter that might be leveled, whether it's at the federal level or the state level or the local level. It's also an important case because it really introduces the Supreme Court to some of the worst abuses of civil forfeiture. Way too many people out there that have gone through what I have and people that have gone through this that didn't even do anything wrong. And in my opinion, this case has never been about the law. It's about what's right and what's wrong. Obviously, the law says you can go either way because it's happened. In my case, I've won and I've lost. So to me, this is about what's right. And I feel like we're right. So I feel good about whatever happens. I joked when this first started, hey, maybe, you know, this can go all the way to the Supreme Court. And it actually happened. And I thought that was just crazy when I first said that. It was a joke. And so this this is way more than I ever expected. So I'm just, I'm thrilled that it's it's made it this far and we're here. I attended the Supreme Court argument on November 28, 2018. I got to the court at 6 a.m. for the 10 a.m. argument. There were already people lining up outside the court, waiting to get in to hear the oral arguments. It was 34 degrees and windy. I met about 20 students from the Jewish Day School here in Washington, D.C. They had studied the case extensively and really wanted to see the argument. I walked into the court at 9.45 with a group of 12-year-olds behind me and the argument started right at 10. The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. We'll hear argument this morning in case 17-1091, Timms versus Indiana. Wesley Hoddett is representing Tyson Timms. The freedom from excessive fines applies to the states because it is deeply rooted in our nation's history and traditions and fundamental to our scheme of ordered liberty. The state of Indiana appears not to dispute that straightforward answer to the actual question presented, and for good reason. The freedom from excessive fines easily warrants incorporation alongside the Eighth Amendment's other protections. This court has said just that five times over the last 30 years. Without addressing the incorporation question directly, the state asks whether the clause applies to the states the same way that it applies to the federal government. But 50 years of incorporation precedent holds that incorporated Bill of Rights protections apply to the states the exact same way that they apply to the federal government. All we're saying is that you have an excessive fines defense that you may raise. Again, this is a case about incorporation. Does the excessive fines clause apply to the states? It's not about what makes a fine excessive. This is Solicitor General Thomas M. Fisher of the state of Indiana. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, in-rem forfeitures have been a feature of the Anglo-American judicial system for hundreds of years. But until about 25 years ago, no court had held that they were subject to a proportionality limitation. While other constitutional doctrines may limit General, before we get to the in-rem argument, 
and its application to this case, can we just get one thing off the table? We all agree that the excessive fines clause is incorporated against the states. Whether this particular fine qualifies because it's an in-rem forfeiture, another question. Can we at least, can we at least agree on that? Well, I have two responses to that. First, with Well, I, I, think, I think a yes or a no would probably be a good starting place. I think Justice Gorsuch's first question out of the gate for the state was not surprising, but it was gratifying because it really, I think, struck to the heart of the case where he basically said, come on, let's be serious. Virtually every other one of the Bill of Rights has long applied to the states. Are you really standing up here and trying to tell us that this one clause is different? And it was great to kind of hear the point that we've been trying to make from day one in this case, get distilled really succinctly and be directed at the state so early on in the argument. Most, most of these incorporation cases took place in, like, the 1940s. Right. And here we are in 2018, still litigating incorporation of the Bill of Rights. Really? Come on, General. My, well, I think what you have to take into account, though, is the history. And you have to take into account all the history. Not just the in personam history, the in rem history. According to the Department of Justice, in cases of civil forfeiture, assets are seized by the police based on a suspicion of wrongdoing without having to charge anyone. The case is considered to be between the police and the thing itself, sometimes referred to by the Latin term in rem, meaning against the property. And property doesn't have rights. We spoke with Solicitor General Thomas Fisher after oral arguments. I guess, first of all, historically, the innocence of the owner hasn't mattered. And, and the, the tradition of the in-run forfeitures has been even where the, the owner didn't know of the misuse or, or and couldn't have known, couldn't have done anything about it, the, the forfeiture was still able to go forward. And the, and the same is still true in terms of the ability of, of states to use in-run forfeiture. Some states, such as Indiana, have built in some innocent owner exceptions but the identity of the owner and the innocence or the guilt of the owner has not been terribly relevant. I didn't even realize I was there until <laughs> there was only like 10 minutes left in arguments and all of a sudden it hit me. I, I don't know if I was in some kind of daze or what, but all of a sudden about 10 to 11, I looked at the clock and then I looked around and oh my gosh, I'm I'm in the Supreme Court. This this is happening right now. I, I don't think it's 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 even really set set in yet. I I'm still it's still kinda unreal to me that, that this e- even you know, that it even happened. But it was it was a I, I can't explain the the feeling when I was sitting in there and, and looking around and the Supreme Court justices were, you know, feet away from me talking about a case that, that I'm involved in that was indescribable. After arguments, we prepared for a long wait. We expected a decision possibly by April or May or June of 2019. Then something surprising happened. This is me speaking with Natalie Dozicki. She is the project manager of libertarianism.org and occasionally acts as my assistant producer. So we're recording this on February 21st. And yesterday, 
What happened yesterday, Natalie? Unexpectedly, um, I was scrolling through one of my news feeds and came across around probably around 1045 in the morning, came across the Tim's decision, which um, was that much more interesting since the federal government was shut down due to snow. Yeah, we had a snow day yesterday. Um, So we were not expecting the court decision and the opinion to be released on February 20th, um, and we act- I actually stumbled across it, which I think was the reaction to quite a few organizations. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually wrote the majority opinion, and she announced the decision yesterday at court. The court ruled in Tyson's favor that the excessive fines clause does apply to the states. It was a unanimous ruling. This is Sam Gedge again. We caught up a couple days after the ruling was released. So we're thrilled that the the U.S. Supreme Court ruled uh, in Tyson's favor on this really important question of constitutional law. I I don't think it's a surprising outcome. I think it was surprising mainly that this issue hadn't been resolved previously. But it's an important part of of what we've described as constitutional housekeeping. And we're, we're looking forward to the next steps in the case. So how do you think this will impact policing for profit? So I don't think it will put a stop to policing for profit. And the reason for that is that even though we we now know that the excessive fines clause applies to states and localities, it's still a comparatively high bar. Most fines and forfeitures kind of almost by definition aren't going to be in the excessive category. So I, I don't think we, we've seen the end of abuses when it comes to civil forfeiture. But this is an important first step. And it's uh, important that the that the court recognize that there are these dangerous incentives out there. Hopefully, this is going to be the first of a number of cases that the U.S. Supreme Court will take in the coming years to address some of the most dangerous aspects of civil forfeiture, whether it's the lopsided burden of proof, whether it's the fact that in in many states, property owners sometimes have to prove their own innocence to get their property back, whether it's the fact that police and prosecutors often go on record publicly saying that budgetary considerations influence their decisions of whether and when to bring this really terrifying power to bear on people. Um, There are a lot of problems, and there are problems that the courts need to address. Civil forfeiture is, and for many years has been, one of the greatest threats to property rights that we've seen in the nation today. And it's really exciting and gratifying that Tyson's experience brought this onto the national stage. Tyson did just a fantastic job as a spokesperson who is not a you know professionally trained spokesperson when it comes to criminal justice issues, but he really took I think one of the most challenging parts of his life and brought it to the national stage. And I, I think he's he's helped us all take a, a really major step forward when it comes to appreciating the dangers that, that come from civil forfeiture. Behind this case was just a man hoping to make a better life for himself and ultimately be a better person. A little heads up before we play this clip. Tyson and I are about to talk about his semicolon tattoo. If you're not already aware, the semicolon tattoo is a message of affirmation and solidarity against suicide, depression, addiction, and other mental health issues. Are you in recovery? Yes. Today? I will be I've been in recovery well since January of 2015, so coming up on 4 years I've been in recovery. That's a huge accomplishment. It's it's been tough sometimes, <laughs> you know. I I don't have this in my notes, but I'm noticing a tattoo that you have on your oh. your knuckle. My semicolon. Yeah, yeah, I, I know what that that is. My 
I have a brother that that died. Um, well, you know, it's uh, I have, you know, I suffer from anxiety and depression too. So, <laughs> you just made me cry by saying that. That's I've known I've known too many people. But yeah, there's, you know, uh, mental health is something people don't take serious. And we should. Because to me, it's just as important as our physical health. I mean, when you feel sick, you go to the doctor. And you don't think twice about it. But when, when somebody feels like they don't belong, they don't ask for help because they're afraid. You know, there's, they don't want to be judged and it shouldn't be like that we've talked about your past um, what's happening today your recovery and I think the last question I have for you is what do you hope for the future what do you hope your life looks like in the future I just want to be happy you know uh I've tried to plan my life and I've had ideas of what it should be and what I wanted it to be. And it's definitely not been this, you know, but this is the life I was supposed to live and I'm happy about it. I I wouldn't have it any other way if I had to do everything all over again. I would. I'd grip my teeth and I'd do it all over again because, you know, I, I like my life today. It's, uh... And whatever happens, as long as I'm happy, you know, I, I've got everything that I've really ever wanted. Uh, I don't, I don't need a lot, but you know, I, I have a, a good family that loves me. The, I've met the love of my life in the last year. Um, just everything is, you know, everything seems to be working out for me. So uh, I just want to be happy. And whatever happens in the future, it'll happen. Thanks for listening to The Pursuit. If you like The Pursuit, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to announce that we're doing things a little bit different this season. We will bring you a new episode and a new story every two weeks. We're welcoming two new hosts, Landry Ayers and Natalie Dowzicki. The Pursuit is a project of Libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute. If you'd like to learn more about Libertarianism, visit us on the web at Libertarianism.org. As always, this is The Pursuit. I'm Tess Terrible. We're glad to be back. We're recording this podcast in October 2019. And as of this time, Tyson still hasn't received his car back.